Hi guys, I'm Zach from the Paradox Institute, and today we will be reacting and responding to the neuroscience section of Forrest Valkai's Sex and Sensibility video. We'll be joined with Sammy, a neuroscience PhD student. Enjoy. For those who don't know, Sammy and I are actually working on a project right now where we will be analyzing the very topic that Forrest Valkai is discussing when it comes to the neuroscience of sex differences, but specifically the what's called the brain sex hypothesis. The idea that for trans people or people who have gender dysphoria, the cause of that difference is due to them having an opposite sex brain in their body. And so what we're going to do with Sammy today is go through Forrest Valkai's sex and sensibility video, specifically the neuroscience section, and we're going to break it down in detail and provide everyone with um, a lot more knowledge than Forrest actually provides and clarify what he's talking about mm -hmm. and also discuss many of the studies that he either cited or is using to try and validate his, his claims. And so we're really excited and we're great to have, happy to have Sammy here with us because he has such a depth of knowledge when it comes to uh, sex differences, especially sex differences in the brain. Just tell us a little bit about your background and what your research studies are, what your plan is in, in your uh, PhD that you're going to get. And yeah. yeah. So my, I started off in psychology, that was my undergrad. And that's sort of where I first really learned about sex differences. I remember I had this one lecture where it was one lecture on sex differences in neuroscience. That's all I had in my whole undergrad. And my lecturer asked, are there sex differences in the brain? And his answer was yes, ish, no ish. And at the time I was really confused. I was like, that, well, that makes no sense. So I started to get really interested in it. And I also learned more about the brain. So I did my master's that was in molecular neuroscience. Uh, I wanted to really understand, I was, I was less interested in psychology and how the mind works, but I was more interested in how the brain works. Mm -hmm. uh, and then down that path, I had two main interests. The first one was obviously sex differences. And the second one was about sleep, sleep, circadian rhythms, and all that sort of thing, which is actually really, really interesting. And there's lots of sex differences there as well, right? Hmm. Uh, so that led me on to my PhD that I'm doing now. I'm currently in my second year, and officially I'm doing neuroimmunology. So I'm looking at microglial cells, they're the immune cells of your brain, how they go awry in dementia, specifically Alzheimer's disease, and how this all interlinks with sleep and circadian rhythms. So your immune system is actually contributing to your sleep on a daily basis. Uh, and that can go awry in Alzheimer's disease and like a lack of sleep and circadian dysregulation is like one of the biggest risk factors for Alzheimer's disease. So that's what I want to do in the future. So my, my main academic interest is in sleep and immunology and all that sort of thing within the brain. But if that falls through, I'll probably go into the sex differences uh, data. So <laughs> I'm sure that, man, you just like probably learned so much already and so much detail in neuroscience that you can even apply to sex differences and just how the brain yeah. works and all the different molecular mechanisms in the brain and how neurons work and things like that. Yeah. It's one of those things where like, um, even in like uh, cognition, so you see all these average differences, uh, sex differences in cognition, but one of the factors that may be underappreciated is that there is circadian variation in how well you're doing certain cognitive tasks. And there are sex differences in how early or how late men and women go through their circadian rhythms. Okay. So if you do a study on if you do if you do a study on, on cognition and you measure your men at one time and the women at a different time, you may either exaggerate or reduce the size of the difference that, that you find. 
Okay. Huh. Those things that no one ever thinks about, really. Yeah. It's mm. really invalidating. Yeah. <laughs> for like a lot of people. Well, if um, your career in neuroscience falls through for whatever reason, um, from what I've seen on Twitter, you can make a killing as a male model or something like that. Like, oh my got, gosh. <laughs> now people are telling you that you're super hunky. So, I mean, there's that. I saw that. For you too. <laughs> saw that lady saying that. That was so funny. <laughs> That was only one tweet though, so that's not a, I want to call myself yeah. a model. That was just the one who had the guts to come forward and that's tell right. you how she feels. I'm sure there are just droves of them who aren't, you know, ready, ready to <laughs> Okay, so what we'll do is we'll go through Forrest's video. I'll pause it at certain times and we can respond to it. So we're starting at the neuroscience section. And speaking of understanding, let's take a minute to talk about brains. Now, I don't have time in this video to get into like the whole anatomy and physiology of how brains work, so I'm gonna skip all that. And I'm just gonna say that there are, in fact, small structural differences between the brains of male and female humans. In other animals, these differences are big enough to be seen with the naked eye, but in humans, it's really, they're quite subtle. We're talking about clusters of neurons that are like the size of a grain of rice. Okay, so let's respond to to that part. It's true that there is structural differences in the brain between males and females, and that's an average difference. It's like you yeah. said, small to a degree. Yeah, you see it in like, um, not, not just these nuclei that he's gonna mention in the video, but you see it in all sorts of places in the brain. But again, like you say, it's on average, it's on the population level. Some of it can correlate with brain size. Some of it can be socialization. Some of it can be due to, you know, hormones through puberty. There's lots of different uh, ways that the, the brains can vary on average between the sexes, but it's not like all men have the same male part, all females have the same female part. Because if you actually look at all, all of the studies and you look at the graphs, you'll see loads of variations. You see like loads of, if they plot all the individual participants, you'll see people who are so atypical. But it, again, it's always on, it's always on the average. Mm -hmm. Right. So there's not like a single thing that we can call oh this is the male brain or this is the female brain as if it's like a black and white dichotomy that applies to every single individual in the same way there's a lot of variation mm -hmm. and there's a lot yeah. of overlap but it doesn't mean that there there are no differences at all yeah um, one thing people get confused about is that with machine learning algorithms you can predict sex with like 95 percent accuracy looking at brain scans but people don't realize that again that's not saying it's a male brain or a female brain because there's say if you have a hundred traits that could be male typical and a hundred traits that could be female typical you could have a different mixture of 60 that are more male typical and someone else could have a different mixture of those a different number of 60 if that makes sense mm -hmm. so it's it's predicting the male brain through different different patterns different combinations of those of those patterns so it's not just because you can predict sex with brain scans doesn't mean it's you know, right. everyone's got the exact same right. male brain. So, it's just a way of predicting what is the sex that that brain belongs to. Like what we're predicting the person's sex mm -hmm. based on those traits in the brain. But it doesn't mean that if you have atypical traits <laughs> for your sex in the brain, that that suddenly makes you not male or female or in between or things yeah. like that. Yeah. And a lot of that's based on, sorry. Oh, no, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, a lot of that's based on brain size as well. So if you control for brain size, it, that accuracy goes down to like 70%, which is still above chance. But then there's other things that these machine learning algorithms aren't considering. So you know how I mentioned like circadian stuff? So you've got circadian differences in the brain, but that's not going to be picked up by a machine learning algorithm looking at structural differences, for example, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. So 
with the brain structure and like brain size, like how different can brain sizes be in people? So males on average have about 10 to 11% larger brain, again, on average. Mm-hmm. And that can have a lot of um, downstream effects. So one of the biggest sex differences that's known about is that women tend to have more uh, intrahemispheric, no, sorry, interhemispheric connectivity. They've got more connections going between the hemispheres where males have more uh, connections going within each hemisphere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and with an increasingly larger brain, you're getting more intrahemispheric connectivity, mm. right? Because the brain's getting too big, so it needs to connect within each hemisphere to perform just as well. Okay. So women with large brains will have more intrahemispheric connectivity, and men with smaller brains will have more intrahemispheric connectivity. Yeah. It just works out that men, on average, have slightly larger brains. Okay. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I think when I read sex studies and sex differences on on verbal and math ability, a lot of people assume that the stereotype is, oh, women aren't very good at math compared to men, but that's not true at all. Actually, what's going on is that because of that interhemispheric connectivity going across the hemispheres, which is more common or more like higher in women, as we as you mentioned, um, it's that women actually excel at math and verbal ability compared to mm-hmm. men whereas men just really excel at math ability and they're not they're not really as great at verbal ability on average so it's partially i think that interhemispheric connection that's really uh, maybe potential evidence for that yeah and one one interesting thing as well like even if you control for height and weight so if you get men and women of the same height and weight men will still have a slightly disproportionately larger brain by about four percent now that doesn't mean a bigger brain is a more intelligent brain. That's not what that means yeah. at all. It's just, a, it's just, it's just how it is, unfortunately. So it's just kind so of a another... chance that somebody ends up with like a bigger brain or a smaller brain. Mm. Uh, and another thing is like, oh, how can I say this? <laughs> oh, I forgot what I was going to say now. Oh, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. What about like brain size, like body size? So there's a correlation, obviously, between brain size and body size, right? Oh, yeah, that, that's, what, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. If you, if you have a study and you control for brain size, so say if you find a sex difference and then you go, oh, we'll, we'll control for brain size, because a brain isn't an exact, it doesn't just scale linearly, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like if you actually, because the brain is slightly bigger in males, even for the same height of weight, if you correct for brain size, you actually may on, end up overcorrecting because you're going past that 4%, that makes mm-hmm. sense. Mm-hmm. So you might actually mask or give a female advantage by, by accident, by overcorrecting. Mm. Okay. Huh. And then one a more lot question. Of people say, oh, go ahead. Go on. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. <laughs> no, you go first. I don't want you, you to go, forget. <laughs> so a, lot of, a lot of people say like, um, oh, because that difference didn't survive brain size correction, that it's, it's not there at all. But again, you need more nuance to understand that if you do that, you might actually hinder the results. Mm, okay. So um, people talk a lot about brains being plastic when it comes to like the architecture and how your environment influences like your brain and, and thought patterns and things like that. Like abuse victims will have like a different brain architecture than people who didn't go through abuse. Is that different based on sex or does that have an impact on on the sexed brain 
like algorithms um, and things like that in machines? I know that like on the molecular level, if you're looking at like the hormones, so androgens and estrogens, I know that they may regulate neuroplasticity in a sex specific way on average, at least in rodents anyway. So even though you're getting the same result, which is like plasticity and these changes, the actual mechanisms and the pathways may be slightly different because androgens and estrogens might regulate d- different genes for mm-hmm. the same process, if that makes sense. So okay, yeah. another, another thing is like when we talk about sex differences, there's different ways you can view that. So you can have a difference between men and women. You can have a behavioral difference or you can have like a behavioral difference, that, sorry, no behavioral difference. So they perform the same on a, on a task, but they, they use different parts of the brain to, to do that. Okay. So that's a sex difference, even though they performed equally well on the, on the task. Yeah. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've read a study about how empathy is one of those examples where they've found evidence that men and women can have similar empathy levels, but they use different parts of the brain to express that trait or even in certain tasks. And I think that's really, really insightful that it's not a one-to-one connection between the like structure of the brain and how it is actually utilized in a task can be that can be different so yeah that's an important thing too mm-hmm. um okay so we're at where Forrest is talking about how there's small differences between males and females and which it sounds like they're pretty significant even though and there can they yeah very tiny. very significant and important ones yeah. actually in the brain that that impact males and females on average i think that's the other thing that people need to realize is this formula that these Mm -hmm. activist types like kind of like present is oh it's just it's such a small um Mm -hmm. thing really like if you look at it through a microscope or you try to measure it it's like really small like the actual amount of so it doesn't matter hormones or or (laughs) the size of that part of the brain is really small Mm -hmm. but the thing with bodies is that like really small processes they have like this ripple effect <laughs> like it, it just, yeah because yeah. bodies exist within a, an entire system yeah and all those processes are like, important you think some of these small differences even though they're small nuclei they may have many many ascending projections to many regions mm-hmm. of the brain and downstream of that they're going to affect that that area that brain area that brain right. area and this and so on so you actually even though it's a small difference it's like a seed or may, like a ripple yeah yeah, basically, yeah. yeah. Just like how in, in sex differentiation where you have the SRY gene that causes mm-hmm. a cascade of other genes for male development. Yeah. Like all those different like snowball effects that happen downstream. Yeah. yeah. Okay, we're going to continue. <laughs> we'll see what he says next. Oh, fun. These are differences that develop within a few weeks before birth to maybe a couple of years after birth. The major notable brain regions that are usually talked about in research papers on this type of thing are the sexually dimorphic nucleus of the preoptic area, the central subdivision of the bed nucleus of the stria terminalis, and the vasoactive intestinal polypeptide-containing subnucleus of the suprachiasmic nucleus. Yeah, try saying that three times fast. And here's a fun fact for you. Trans people have been consistently shown to have neural architecture in these areas that matches their gender identity, not their genitalia. So that's the big one, that yeah. those three areas of the brain, the BSTC, the SDN-POA, and the VIPSCN, that those areas, uh, for some reason, he said, match the sex that they identify as. And this, is, this has been an area of research for decades now, and so we can break down each of those areas and 
and talk about that in detail. So you can start us off, Sammy. Right. So one of the first things he says is that he says gender identity, but he doesn't give any definition of what that is. So you're just sort of arguing with nothing That's there, really. really but... big at it, Abby. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Guilty. <laughs> so the first one he says is the central subdivision of the bed nucleus of the stride terminalis. But what you'll notice in this video as well, it doesn't give you any overview of what these nuclei do, if they're corresponding to, if he's talking about like the actual rodent data or human data, because there's lots of, especially the SDM POA that he mentions, that's hilariously inconsistent in, in, in the literature. It's awful. But I'll, I'll start with the BSTC. So to give you an idea of what this actually does, in humans, there's been lots of fMRI studies that's revealed that the, the, uh, the BST is involved in like fear and anxiety. So some of these studies where if, if you're in an fMRI scanner and they get people with specific phobia to say spiders or something, if they, they wait and they wait and they wait, and that BSTC is going mental, right? It's really active. And then when you see, you actually see the picture, that's scary. It becomes deactivated. And the amygdala, which is like a fear response, stress response, all the, all the really potent stress responses that we, we feel, that becomes activated. And then when the picture goes again, and there's that apprehension, the anxiety, the BSTC then becomes active again. So it's very involved in apprehension, anxiety, and it's, it goes awry in PTSD, uh, general anxiety disorder, all of these sorts of things. So when you think about that, and you look at sex differences as well, you'll find that women on average have more anxiety problems and will always develop depression and things like that. When it comes to the trans people, uh, the study that he's probably referring to, the finding was actually non-significant. So the, it didn't even reach statistical significance. It was like P uh, 0.083, which is just nowhere near. But what they found in the original swab studies was that it was independent of homosexuality. So homosexuals had a uh, normal, if you were, for their sex, BSTC. And the male to female transsexuals had a more female-like BSTC. And it's often argued that that's, that's where gender identity is, is located within the brain. But for me, there's so many different ways you can explain that. So one that I've done, on, I've spoken a lot about on Twitter, is that if it is involved in depression and anxiety and all these things, you find that trans women, so that's the male to female transsexuals, have such high rates of depression. And we know that this nucleus can change a lot with um, environmental input as well. So, you know, the, the environment could play a big role there. Mm -hmm. And in addition, the same authors that actually identified this nucleus in, in transgender people later found that this nucleus doesn't even become dimorphic until around 30 to 35 years of age. So this is way, way after the onset of gender dysphoria, especially in like childhood, if you think about that. Well, I mean, that would, in my opinion, correlate with um, autogynephilia because that gets worse with age. Mm -hmm. So there might be some kind of correlation Yeah, there's a level there. of anxiety yeah. related to that as well. Yeah. But I think that um, it is really interesting that there's that correlation between anxiety and mm -hmm. anxiety disorders and that hyperactive, if I'm not mistaken, the BSTC. And 
there was also a study done that Forrest cited that was from 2000 and it, it analyzed six male to female transsexuals. And that's what I was on. That's, that's, that's the one that was non-significant as well. Yeah, that was a non-significant. Yeah, and they were on estrogen for mm -hmm. like a majority of their of their time before the study was taking place, and so that is also a confounding variable. Is like yeah. how does estrogen impact the BSTC? And we also know that estrogen has a potential role in in regulating or or affecting anxiety disorders, yeah. right? So that could be a potential uh, a potential confounding variable that Forrest doesn't even mention. Yeah. Mm. Like just in my experience with taking artificial estrogen, it was like, oh my gosh, I wanted to be like crawling on the ceiling at like 4 a.m. <laughs> like the anxiety was through the roof. And then they took me off of it and then I crashed. Mm -hmm. So it was really crazy. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I would imagine that would have yeah. a pretty significant yeah. impact. So it's, it's just unreasonable to, to claim that the BSTC, that the atypical differences in males or in, in people with gender dysphoria in general is evidence that they actually have an opposite sex brain. Like, yeah. like we discussed, yeah. there is not one single thing called an opposite sex brain or a male, female brain. There's differences, right? So one thing that's really interesting as well is that in in those studies to identify the actual borders of the BSTC that they stained for a, a a peptide called somatostatin, right? And in normal neurons, somatostatin is inhibitory, right? So there's this idea that in a, a healthy microcircuit, so if these neurons are interneurons, right? So it's like a little local microcircuit these somatostatin neurons are firing quite high at baseline. So it's inhibiting the nucleus, right? So you've got a high signal to noise ratio. In a pathological circuit, when there's not a lot of somatostatin, which was what was found in those transgender participants, you've got, you, you haven't got that signal to noise ratio. So these neurons um, aren't firing at baseline. So there's no in, uh, inhibition. So that nucleus, that baseline, is just firing constantly. So you can see why, why that nucleus, you know, can cause cause um, anxiety. Okay, and that, and we know that gender dysphoria, having gender dysphoria, uh, there's a lot of comorbidities with anxiety disorders, with depression, eating disorders, all these different things that that could be, you know, um, indicators even, of, yeah. of that happening in the brain. Even things like OCD. One thing that's associated with anxiety and depression is actually low somatostatin in the brain. So, uh -huh. yeah, and there's an extra correlation there with this this nucleus and depression, and there's the correlation between depression and anxiety in these individuals as well. Yeah. Okay, so that's that's something that those studies looking at those transgender individuals did not account for at all. Yeah. No. And again, like going back to an argumentative standpoint, he was talking about how oh these parts of the brain these sex difference parts are so small doesn't even not even worth like looking at that's right but then yeah. now he's going but look at how important these like lineups are between trans women's brains and women's brains and the opposite sex it's yeah like, mm, if they're so small and that means the yeah. variation is so large why can't yeah. you accept that variation as within sex within sex yeah. variation within males and within females right, right? So it's, a, it's a contradiction Mm -hmm. um like why is it important now but it wasn't important two minutes yeah, ago absolutely so, yeah
the next one, what do you want to cover next? The SDN POA or the the other one? Uh, we'll do the SDN SDN POA. Okay. So in this nucleus, in it's famous in rodents, right? So it stands for the sexually dimorphic nucleus of the preoptic area. And if you zoom out a little bit and into the hypothalamus and you, you just look at the POA, so the preoptic area, that's in itself is quite sexually dimorphic in rodents. And it, it correlates really strongly with sex-specific reproductive behavior, right? So in males, uh, it causes mounting, thrusting, intermissions, all that, all that fun stuff. In females, it causes lordosis. So that's when the, the rat will actually have dorsiflexion of the spine and it'll lift its bum in the air. Right? <laughs> so it's like ready, ready for sex play, basically. Um, and if you, if you zoom in slightly, you get the medial POA, so the MPOA. That's the part that's actually most important. So if you lesion that part of the brain, males will no longer mount thrust. They'll do none of their male-specific acts. If you stimulate that, they'll do more. Right, and that's especially true in uh, sexually experienced male rats. But if you go to the next level, so that's the SDN POA, which is actually the most dimorphic part. That's surprisingly, if you lesion that in experienced animals, it doesn't really do much, which is quite odd, bit paradoxical. If you lesion it in sexually naive male rats, it has a big effect. Hmm. So there's this, so. One important factor is actually the sexual experience of the individual and how this how this uh, this nucleus functions, basically. Hmm. Uh, and it's in rodents. Again, so he mentioned in the video, it's about, you can see it with the naked eye. And in rodents, you can. It's about three to eight times larger. And it has uh, about two to three times more dendritic spines. So that's the site of um, synaptic connections, excitatory connections, right? Mm -hmm. And somehow this... this uh, circuitry contributes to these sex-specific behaviors. Okay. That so circuitry, okay. That, yeah, that circuitry in the rodents pretty well um, researched, okay? Hmm. When it comes to the humans, it's an absolute nightmare because we don't know which <laughs> nucleus it corresponds to. Uh, okay, that makes right? sense. So in the literature for humans, there's been a few, they call it the interstitial nuclei of the anterior hypothalamus and there's four of those nuclei so it's ANAH one to four right mm. some researchers find sex differences in the first one some are found in in the, in the third one and it's really inconsistent because it change it changes based on age uh, the type of method they use to assess it and there's lots of disagreement about which one it corresponds to in the rodent right right so yeah in in his video he's being very confident that this nucleus in our brain which he thinks is the sdn poa which actually there's no consensus on that whatsoever yeah yeah that's a good point yeah like because of that inconsistency in literature it's not right for him to be making huge claims mm -hmm. that one we know where where that area is exactly for humans and what what controls it exactly in humans? What controls that that type of sexual behavior? And then also uh, jumping to the even further conclusion of if there's any differences there, then that's evidence that you're actually trans, or that yeah. that that your identity as trying to identify as the opposite sex is somehow validated by that difference. There's just not any evidence really for for right. you to be making those claims at all. And this is, I think, where we see, again, like the taxonomy 
issue come into that type of argument is like he's conflating something from mice in people Mm -hmm. and he's not saying it like outright but it seems to be what is happening because that would be where the studies would be coming from is from the mice from not from the people Mm -hmm. so again it's important to be clear in where you got your research from and the taxonomy of like which animal it came from and there's certain things that do apply from other animals to humans yeah but there's things that there's plenty of things that don't and for him to conflate those two is is not not good it doesn't it's not teaching people what the actual reality is yeah and like you said uh using using the the uh sdnpoa in that area in in mice Mm-hmm. to then apply that to humans when there's not consistent literature in humans yeah. it just doesn't work this would like, be like trying to argue for like oh because you know webbing can increase between digits mm-hmm. um you know studies have shown that that can happen so you're more adaptable for like aquatic life like that would come from studies of like an animal but then yeah. applying it to a human without like yeah. any research that consistently backs that up yeah, one, one issue I've noticed as well is that um, when you when you try and relate these nuclei in the brain to humans and particularly uh, transgender, you have to remember that if you are going to correspond this to the rodent data, the rodent data is showing you sexual behaviour, and if you reverse it, so like if you pump a female pup with estrogen, it then becomes more male-like in the brain. So it's a, so, so it's SDNPOA <laughs> becomes more masculine. Yeah. Uh, okay. And, then, huh. and they'll they'll have less lordosis. They'll start doing male typical behaviors, and it's the same with the male ones, right? So right. what you're changing is the sex mm-hmm. behavior, right? Not this, not the not sex. This, uh, this, like yeah, yeah. <laughs> all all this dissatisfaction with their natal sex. I don't think uh, rodents okay. think like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's true. So would it be the because I think you may have flubbed it because you said a female rodent full of estrogen then she becomes more male in behavior. Is it yeah, no, that's right. Yeah. Really? In, in, yeah. So what what happens is during the sort of um, embryonic period, mm-hmm. the gonads will produce loads of androgens, the testosterone. Mm-hmm. It'll go into the brain, and then it will be converted into estrogen via an enzyme called aromatase. Yeah. And it's the high levels of estrogen in, in that period, that perinatal period, that masculinizes the brain. Mm-hmm. So females don't have that. So their brain goes oh. through the normal female development. Interesting. Interesting. Huh. Yeah. I remember reading information about how estrogen has a role in masculinization but i didn't it was never really made clear to me how that works in the brain it's really interesting it's kind of paradoxical because people people you know assume a lot of people assume that estrogen only has an effect in females or testosterone only affect in males but obviously we both sexes have both hormones we have both hormones but to differing levels and they have different roles um but that's a really interesting role of estrogen Mm-hmm. When it comes to it's males, like the, the estrogen I think, humans, too. I think in humans, it's not exactly clear if if the, if the same sort of mechanism does happen, because our androgen receptor works fine. Yeah. <laughs> so androgens can either go straight to the androgen receptor, or they uh, they might be put forth into estrogens and then act via the mm-hmm. the two estrogen receptors. That makes sense. Yeah. That's cool. To see, can't be can't be using mice. As yeah. Like... <laughs> Always. <laughs> not for everything. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's let's see. So we covered the SDN POA. We, we talked about how it's not the literature is not consistent to like what actual structure applies to humans. 
and there's all those different compounding variables that have not been separated out yet. And now we can move on to the VIP SCN and how that applies to. Yeah, so I think this is where he probably got the most confused mm-hmm. because um, <laughs> I couldn't find anything on gender dysphoria and uh, that part of the SEN, right? Because the SEN has two parts. It has a core and has a shell. The core part is the VIP bit, right? So it's all that uh, vasoactive intestinal polypeptide. That receives information about the light-dark cycle. It's involved in circadian rhythms and sleep, mm. okay? Uh, and what the, what VIP does in the SEN is it synchronizes neurons in the SEN and it allows for the SEN to output that through its shell, which is vasopressin. So the shell part contains lots of vasopressin neurons. And I think it's vasopressin that he's trying to talk about because there's absolutely no data on the VIP SEN. Yeah, I did research on that too, and I could not find anything that he was talking about on the VIP SCN. Um, but yeah. even then, I've, the only data I've seen, because there are sex differences in the VIP SCN, you, you find like men tend to have slightly more VIP, VIP expressing neurons in the SEN. Uh, but when it came to homosexuals and sexual orientation, I did find that the VIP SEN was the same. But homosexual males actually had even more vasopressin SEN neurons than heterosexual males. So rather than being atypical, they actually went the other way, which is what he'll say in a minute, actually, but he gets it confused with VIP SEN. Okay. Okay, let's continue this now and let's see what else he says. So, for example, the BSTC is about 50% larger in men than it is in women. A trans man, so someone transitioning from female to male, has a BSTC that is the size of a cis man's. And similarly, a trans woman has a BSTC that is the size of a cis woman's. What is he defining as a trans man and a trans woman? Is he talking about someone who's already on hormones? Or is he talking about just someone with gender dysphoria who is identifying as trans? It's unclear. He doesn't know. He never says. Okay. Because... Go ahead. The studies that he's talking about... It's like, it's like Zach said earlier, they're a mixture of like um, sort of pre and post because like half of them are on hormone therapy, some of them aren't, some of them are gay, some of them aren't. Mm-hmm. So it's like really confusing to sort of pinpoint what's actually going on. Yeah, yeah. because when you were talking about um, the sexual activity part and, and things like that in the mice, like it reminded me of the phantom phallus things that I've experienced and that other females with gender dysphoria have talked to me about and like also like AAP and AGP mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. And, and just things like that, like sexually, that mm-hmm. I've, I've heard talking yeah. to other people with gender dysphoria. So I have to wonder if maybe that might be like, what's affecting it. I, I mean, obviously, like you said, there's not a great way to, to tell right now consistently, like in humans, but I mean, it'd be interesting to know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's just not enough studies yeah. on it. And there's so many compounding and, variables. Right. And it's not consistent yeah. within people with gender dysphoria that I have talked to. Not everybody yeah. has those experiences. Mm-hmm. So even like female attracted, like mm-hmm. females who have gender dysphoria, like don't experience the phantom phallus thing or like the urge to thrust or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and likewise with males that have gender dysphoria. Like, mm-hmm. so like AAP in particular is a pretty small, like, mm-hmm. sample, yeah. <laughs> like, or, or population size of, like, people with gender dysphoria, yeah. at least from what I've 
yeah so it's hard to get data on that yeah but also what he said there with the size difference between the bstc uh, and and trans men versus versus how they how it aligns with cis men like you said there are not enough studies to show whether like what that is from and they're confounded by sexual orientation and he could be talking about my problem (laughs) 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 yeah like all those variables that are not being covered that's a huge problem so you can't make even though let's say that exists even that different even if that difference exists in the brain doesn't mean that that means that they actually are the sex they identify as right well, because it's another big issue. As well. oh, Sorry, <laughs> another big issue in these is that um, when these authors are actually trying to um, actually measure the size of these nuclei, they're doing it by by, by hand. Mm. So they stain it for a specific molecule. So, like say somatostatin, and they'll draw it around it, and they basically do it that way. Mm-hmm. Which is obviously in person to person doing that. It's going to be a lot of variation as well. And if you consider the other peptides in the BSTCs, I've got some written down here. You've got dinorphin and uh, enkephalin, neurotensin, neuropeptide Y, vasopressin, substance P, neurokinin B. There's all these molecules that are actually in that in that nucleus, which could show you differential results. Oh, they've see. just stuck. They've just stuck to one molecule, and they've sort of hand drawn it basically. And that's one of the biggest wow. issues across these early studies. Sure. So they're drawing their conclusions based on based on just basically like tagging one molecule molecule but not mm. not the mm. rest of them so they're they're missing a lot of data yeah so you, it, it'd be quite interesting to see how all those other molecules fare in the mm-hmm. transgender population because it would be, actually be more interesting if it was only somatostatin that was reduced because again that correlates with depression and anxiety mm-hmm. that would be interesting too. yeah it just doesn't sound like we are or that we've been precise enough in studying these things. Yeah, no, we we don't have enough like sample size. We're not precise enough. We're doing a lot of confounding variables, like not accounting mm-hmm. for confounding variables in our studies, and that's a big problem when well, it comes to this so research. Many, there's so many potentially confounding yes, variables, especially when it comes to the brain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So and most of these papers were twenty years ago as well. Yeah, but like they're in the 90s and early two thousands, and it just sort of stopped. And I just yeah, you can't really find anything in these nuclei post like 2002 it's a bit old that's weird (laughs) that's so weird okay i'm gonna continue this and we'll see what else he says these are structural differences that cannot be accounted for with any amount of sexual reassignment surgery or any amount of hormone therapy this is literally having a female brain trapped inside a male body or vice versa from birth from birth that's a big one because like you said some of these differences don't even exist until like like 35 years of age he said it he even said from like they can happen at birth or a certain amount of time Mm -hmm. after birth so he's now like yeah he's now saying that it it all happens at birth yeah this is from birth (laughs) that they're born with again he's making it sound so significant now when just a little bit ago so tiny, smaller than a grain of rice. Don't even worry about it. Don't sweat yep. <laughs> it. It's not a big deal. Like whatever. Yeah. Like it's weird. <laughs> yeah. What do you think, Sammy? Yeah, it just blows my mind, really, mate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like the just female like... brain in a male body comment that he made there. Like, yeah. How can know, yeah. how can you say that when you just said the differences are so small between yeah. males and females? But he's saying the entire brain now is trying and. 
like for me, because I, I didn't transition. So I'm, I'm like, no, tell me more. (laughs) (laughs) It's super, super accurate and interesting what you're saying. And definitely a hundred percent of the time, the case, like I've had this argument with activists before where it's like, okay, well, I didn't transition and there are detransitioners. So how do you explain our situation? And they will come back with, oh, well, you know, you're free not to transition. It doesn't work out for everybody. So it's like, well, if it is absolute that it is the wrong brain and the, the wrong body, like, then it has to be like an absolute provable thing. That's what you're you're proposing right now. So you can't say, oh, it's your choice. It's how you want to identify, whatever. And then say that you are trapped in your body. That poor brain of yours is just with little bars and looking out those eyeballs of yours. Like, oh, I just wish I could be like, no, it's not this. It's yeah. I think that's what I've heard you from up there saying, saying the word trapped. So these studies yeah. are uh, cross-sectional in design. So they're comparing different groups of people rather than doing it in a longitudinal fashion. So not following the same people over time. Right. And considering that these nuclei most likely change with age or other circumstances, it'd be really interesting to have a an actual longitudinal sample of transgender people. Yeah. But obviously because this is post-mortem though, it's gonna be very hard to do. <laughs> yeah. Well and it, it would be hard to do anyway because right. like your identity or like how you feel about gender or the social constructs that we stereotype and force on people and whatever, like that changes over time. Like my sister, she also really, really rejected femininity, like because of my grandmother forcing femininity on, Mm. on us. And then now she loves like just everything girly, like, oh my gosh, I cannot tell you how many like shoes and jewelry and mm. <laughs> like, you know, like stereotypically feminine things that she's indulged in now and she really enjoys it. So I don't know that that would yield the results that they are hoping yeah. that it would yield. And like, again, and, and as people get older, like you just kind of chill out and relax and want to just be comfy. <laughs> so I don't know how that would factor into like a gender identity yeah. because you stop caring, you stop having to, you know, you're not advertising for the opposite sex mm-hmm. anymore or for the same sex. You're not advertising for a partner anymore mm-hmm. typically at that point. So you're just kind of like chilling in your sweatpants most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> I like, I like your point too, that like, he is trying to come up with a way to measure gender identity. And he's he's claiming that this is a way, mm-hmm. a, a way to measure it and that it proves that they actually are the sex they identify as. But, he hasn't even defined gender identity anyway. No, he hasn't even yeah. defined it. Like, yeah, so how can you actually measure it if it hasn't been well, defined, right? He's trying to argue for a measurement standard whilst also undermining yes. that the fact that there are differences. Yes, he's trying so, to minimize the categorical differences. Yeah. And then saying that there is that there are that there are categorical differences, right? That is a huge problem. It's a huge contradiction (laughs) in what he's saying. Yeah, Um, but I mean, he's just so confident. That's the thing. (laughs) The confidence can really trip people a lot. They'll they'll believe it if somebody's really confident about it. You just posted something about that, too, like a chart or something that showed like the confidence. Oh yeah, Dunning Kruger. Yeah, that yeah. Mm Hmm. Yeah. 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 The less you know, the more confident you are. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. he's proven it right now. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. So.
I don't know if you guys noticed as well, in a part of what you said a minute ago, you mentioned that no amount of sex reassignment surgery, no amount of hormones will change these these nuclei. Mm-hmm. And I yeah. find that yeah. a bit of a strange one because I have seen evidence that, I can't remember what it was now, was it in uh, female to male trans transsexuals, I think, and they were on androgen treatment. Uh, and we noticed that there was lots of plastic changes within the hypothalamus, which is mm-hmm. near where these nuclei are located. Yeah. So already, you know, these hormones are going to be changing these these brain yeah. regions. Yeah. So that's a that's a huge thing to claim. Yeah. That they they cannot change at all, no matter what you do. Like yeah. as we've shown, they're plastic regions. They can change. I mean, look at how much it changes the body. So you you have to yeah. also realize that it changes the brain. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. That's, just, that's absolutely insane claim. Yeah. yeah. Oh, great, there's more. Yep. Incidentally, in homosexuals, that same region, the BSDC, is the perfect size for their gender, because sexual orientation and gender are two entirely different things. However, interestingly enough, the VIP SCN is actually more dimorphic. So it's smaller in females and larger in males, but in gay males, it's even larger. So it's like they're more masculine in this way. So that's kind of cool. So that's what you mentioned earlier about the vas about about vasopressin, correct? That vasopressin, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yep. So but he's conflating that with the VIPSCN. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, look at his face too. He just yes. looks so cheerful. <laughs> <laughs> he's so happy. <laughs> oh man. So what do you think about that, about what he claimed there? I mean, we kinda already covered a lot of that, but yeah. Yeah, I forgot the first, what was the first part that he said. I can't remember what he said there. He, let's see. Let me replay that. Incidentally, in homosexuals, that same region, the BSDC, is the perfect size for their gender, because sexual orientation and gender are two entirely different things. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I do know in those studies, homosexual men did have the male typical BSTC for whatever reason. But his thinking behind that is that they're that gender identity is completely different. Again, something he's not defined. <laughs> yeah. It's a magical thing that people seem to have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Huh. Well, I mean, it could just be that homosexuals who are comfortable being homosexuals don't have a bunch of, like, issues with anxiety and depression. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, possibly, yeah. 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 He, he also, you know how he's claiming that, he said right here, that sexual orientation and gender identity are completely different things. First of all, he hasn't defined it. Yeah. But second of all, his studies that he uses to claim that trans people are the sex they identify as, those studies do not account for sexual orientation. They, <laughs> they yeah, it's a confounding variable in those studies where if you look at studies that do account for sexual orientation, those differences go away because... Now they see that, oh, trans people who are homosexual have brain uh, brain structures that are typical of other homosexual people. And then mm-hmm. trans people who are heterosexual have brain structures typical of regular heterosexual people. So those are studies that do account for sexuality. And they show that actually there is no proof of opposite sex brain. Mm. One One interesting point as well is that in the literature on the SDNPOA, or well, technically in humans, the INAH3, right? Simon LeVay had a famous study where he found it was reversed in homosexuals, right? 
So there's obviously one confounding variable, but even within that, another study failed to replicate the homosexual finding. So even then, even though you've got a possible confounding variable, it's even inconsistent within that as well. So we have no idea what's going on, really. Wow. Yeah. So you can't make any wide sweeping conclusion at all, really. Yeah. It's not no. really possible. Yeah. And to do so is to place yourself on a very, very precarious foundation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's just a little silly to me that these people are making these incredible, like, firm statements like definitive statements about gender identity mm -hmm. and being trans and this and that and it they don't have the data at all to back it up mm -hmm. but then also you are who you say you are anyone can be trans trans can be anything and yeah. your identity can be anything so then why bother with this yeah isn't that transphobic right because you're setting up like, a categorical standard or yeah. measurement that boxes people in that you have to be or have to have these brain structures to actually right. be trans and that's, yeah. that goes against the entire ideology right. so i don't understand why he's even doing this if there's like no point from an activist perspective to do it yeah because if you're going to say you are who you say you are you don't need to have gender dysphoria to be trans anybody can be trans trans doesn't have a definition really it's it's just you don't feel comfortable as your birth sex or whatever and you just want to identify differently so why like that just say that then like there's no point in in making like completely false statements if you're gonna yeah. if you're gonna do that yeah so you made you made a really good point there about um gender dysphoria and trans being sort of like separate things because like in all of the data I've seen on transgender brains, they've all got a diagnosis of gender dysphoria right, mm -hmm. via the, either the DSM-5 or whatever previous version was. Mm -hmm. So if you, if these activists try and extrapolate that and they say, oh, well, I'm trans and it's not actually got gender dysphoria, they're just saying I'm trans, it's trendy or whatever it is. Yeah. They use this evidence to back up why they're trans, even though they say I haven't got dysphoria. And it's like, well, you can't, Right. You can't differentiate between the two because these studies are on specifically gender dysphoria mm -hmm. via specific criteria. You know, it's very, yeah. very specific. Right. And people who have or people who identify as trans don't necessarily have gender dysphoria because it's just an identity label. Yeah. For these people. Like, <laughs> tell me how these studies refer to somebody who uses like Zezer or right. Fayfair pronouns right. or they, them. Like, it's not the same right. as someone who was diagnosed with gender dysphoria and was a transsexual for a set amount of years before yeah, having I think that really takes away from, Yeah, I think that really takes away from people who have dysphoria because you're yeah. just sort of like ruining it for oh, those, yeah. those people who need, need the help, basically. Yeah, yeah no, the therapy options are <laughs> absurd. <No. laughs> the, argument, the argument could be, well, we shouldn't study this because it doesn't actually matter and because we don't want to create a category, basically. For to, mm -hmm. to you know, um, because gender dysphoria they say is not a mental condition, not a mental yeah. health condition. So we shouldn't actually try to look for regions in the brain that might be causing it or or symptoms of it, you know. And so we just mm -hmm. shouldn't study that in the brain. And that means that treatment for gender dysphoria could yeah. reduce treatment so, options could yeah. reduce, which we see now actually happening. 
Yeah. And also he's not, at least from what I've seen, not made space for people who have pronouns other than like the sex-based pronouns. Yeah. He's been, he's been so, working within be the binary. So way to be a transphobic turf forest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's been working within the binary. Yeah. <laughs> One thing I'm quite surprised that he does is that he actually focuses on these three nuclei when, you know, if you know anything about neuroscience in this area, you know how inconsistent this sort of stuff is. Yeah. I'm surprised he hasn't um, tried to cite the actual neuroimaging uh, data, so like the fMRIs, MRIs, because that's what is probably, if you don't know that sexuality is a confounding variable, they're the ones that are probably more convincing mm -hmm. if you yeah. didn't know that sexuality was um, confounding those results. Yeah, yeah that's true. But and they're probably easier to read because they're a bit more yeah. consistent. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But he doesn't know the literature well enough to to like understand even how to make the strongest case yeah. for his, mm -hmm. his argument. But you'd think that he would use them because they come with pictures. And I'm sure go. he would yes. love to just use pictures. Yes. <laughs> I don't think he used he used one picture, yeah. which is the that brain picture mm -hmm. showing the different parts that we, we discussed. Yeah. Very okay. specific, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> with the arrows, the giant arrows coming in. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. Okay, let's see if he says anything else here. And speaking of homosexuality, there's clear evidence that there's a big genetic component to that as well. Back in the 1990s, there were several studies that were done that showed that if one identical twin was gay, there was up to a 65% chance that the other identical twin would be gay. Okay, so this is like near the end of the neuro neuroscience section, but we could cover this part right here as well. And I have seen those studies that show that birth order, there is a birth order effect, seems like, on homosexuality. Um, I don't know if you have any information to add when it comes to the brain yeah, and homosexuality. Probably two things. So they, those twin studies are actually like pretty good, I think. I really like twin studies on mm -hmm. homosexuality. It shows a, it doesn't mean there's a gay gene, but it means that like genetics is involved in some way, whatever, whatever it is. The problem is, knowing that, I've seen so many twin studies on gender dysphoria trying to find their genetic linkage. But again, you find that all the participants are homosexual. So if you know that sexuality has a genetic component and your gender dysphoric participants are all homosexual, you're going to find the same thing. And going back to that fraternal birth order effect, the same thing's been done as well. So that they did a study on gender dysphoria to see if they got a fraternal birth order effect for that as well. But if you probably guess where I'm going with this, all the participants were homosexual. Um. <laughs> and, in, and in the introduction, they cited all the evidence about this um, sexual orientation, you know, the fraternal birth order effect, and then they just used the homosexual sample again. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so yeah, it's like a yeah. for sexual orientation. Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's, that's interesting. Well, it would make sense in, in me and my siblings. Yeah. Because I'm bisexual, mm -hmm. leaning more towards female attraction, mm -hmm. and then they're straight mm -hmm. mostly yeah. <laughs> jennifer <laughs> bisexual yes jennifer's bisexual but she's only just now exploring that <laughs> yeah. so um but yeah but she doesn't have gender dysphoria she doesn't have yeah. an eating disorder but yeah not the gender dysphoria so yeah that is interesting again like yeah. going back to the importance of of accounting for all the variables in your studies before making huge claims accounting mm -hmm. for sexual orientation which is a which is a big one um which you would think he would want to do because yeah. he was like, they are not the same thing at yeah. all. And it's like... But he's conflating the two yeah. unknowingly okay. by not accounting for the confounding variables. Um, yeah, so... It's just so... Yeah. 
it's just so common in the neuroimaging data. It's just unbelievable. Like I did a tweet thread yesterday where they did a machine learning algorithm on male and females, looked at their brains, and then they had transgender women as well. And uh, they classified this brain sex index where women were zero, men were one. So the closer you are to, you know, one more male, your brain is basically. It sounds pretty binary. And the transgender women, their um, index was 0.75. So it was only marginally shifted. You know, it was still like 25% shifted, right. but it was still mainly male. Right. And 25% of that cohort was homosexual. Oh, wow. <laughs> so like that 25% caused that 25% yeah, marginal shift. shift. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. But it, that paper cited absolutely everywhere yeah. all the time. That's crazy. Yeah. I've... And I even emailed the authors as well of that study, and they agreed yeah. that sexual orientation was the, you know, was what <laughs> caused oh, it. Oh, wow. Like, That's cool they got back to you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wonder if Forrest emailed anybody. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the pattern that you and I have seen, especially, Sammy, when we've done, like, this research on these papers, is that the papers that include homosexual... Uh, samples without really accounting for it they get those results that seem shifted but in reality they're not when those studies that do account for sexual orientation are done they find that then you can actually separate out the data and see oh this is a homosexual effect on this trait mm -hmm. it's not a trans effect on that trait or not yeah. a gender dysphoria effect yeah, and you, you always see across all these studies where if you actually add up the percentage of homosexuals, so whether it's, say, 100% heterosexual, 25% homosexual, 75% homosexual, and 100% homosexual, you find if you look at those studies that they become more and more atypical. Mm, yeah. As the percentage of homosexuality increases. Yeah. Because of homosexuality, yeah. yeah. Huh. Well, I mean, kudos for all those... Um studies showing that homosexuality is like a real thing yeah and that can it can be measured yeah it can be measured. So, yay because yeah. <laughs> i've had arguments with activists where they were talking about how homosexuality cannot be measured and cannot be shown in any consistent way and it's like mm, this is yeah but they, they, always get, they always get confused because i always say like oh you know it was confounded by sexual orientation and they go oh we just don't understand because gender identity and sexual orientation are two different things i'm like you, no, you, you're, you're yeah, exactly. Yeah. I've heard, I've had comments where people are like, you're saying that all trans people are gay. They're not the same thing. It's like, yeah. no, that's not what all I'm saying. Time. I'm saying that, that trans people who are homosexual have <laughs> brains that are more similar to regular homosexuals and trans people who are heterosexual have brains that are more similar to regular heterosexuals. Yeah. And that yeah. the differences that we actually find that are unique to people with gender dysphoria have to do with the brain regions moderating or regulating uh, self-perception mm -hmm. the like the default mode yeah. network for example yeah so uh, again it's still early days though and there's lots of different phenotypes for gender dysphoria so it's mm -hmm. sort of unclear how these you know body perception circuits are actually interacting with the different phenotypes as well mm -hmm. but it's it's still early days but it does look well to me it looks like um i mean it, it makes sense as well because it's if you look at the crux of what gender dysphoria is it's this you know dissatisfaction with your your natal sex yeah so I don't get why being atypical, when there's so much variation in atypicalness, shall we say, mm -hmm. would cause that. So these these changes in the brain in the default mode network, um, you know, these white matter tracks like the the inferior fronto occipital fasciculus that that connects the default mode network as well, and these are all involved in body perception, self image, autobiograph autobiographical memory, mm -hmm. thoughts about the self, you know, all of this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. 
and these sort of don't get connected very well in in their brain so mm-hmm. it's easy to see why that would cause a lot of trauma for these people yeah yeah but for some reason activists they just, they do not want this explanation or they do not want a different explanation it has to be my brain is female and it's just like right and it, it's really and what? some people have gotten upset with me for saying this but it's really not that different from an eating disorder or body integrity disorder which people are trying to now make body integrity disorder valid. And I mean, it was a similar thing. I felt like my genitals were an alien on my body. I didn't, I was terrified of them. I was disgusted by them. I did not project that onto other females' bodies. So if I looked at another woman, like my mother or my grandmother, if they were like bathing me or something as a child, it didn't disgust me in the way that my body did and it felt alien to me and Mm. that's how it has continued to present over time even though i've gotten better with it through therapy and things like that Mm -hmm. but so why is that something that they want to validate like why i just don't understand why that's good or healthy like it's not okay to completely reject and hate parts of your body like that seems very disturbed to me from like even from like a survival like a a basic animal survival standpoint like that's not normal or natural or yay glitter family let's give you a parade like you know that's like a big deal to want to change those fundamental things about yourself and to be so bothered by them yeah so i don't understand it's it's the same as thinking your arm is an alien and yeah. wanting to cut it off or your leg or whatever. It's the same thing. It's a distorted it's a distorted and disordered way of thinking. Yeah. It doesn't mean that your feelings should not be listened to. They should be listened to. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that they're true. Right. And that's an important distinction. People want to focus on how any feeling or thought you have is absolutely true. And that yeah. we shouldn't we shouldn't critically analyze it, right? We should want us to feel comfortable in our natural bodies without having to rely on that escapism through medicalization or identifying Mm -hmm. differently like that's not better that's not good that's not healthy Mm -hmm. that's that can be a very unhealthy coping mechanism because it it becomes harder and harder to find a stopping point for a lot of people because it it does get obsessive because it's not you're never going to escape you're never going to escape your body. Like until we get like robot bodies and we can transport our consciousness or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> like um, in a sci-fi movie, you can't escape it. Like that's your body. And I mean, it's it's natural and, and good and healthy to love it and accept it. And, mm-hmm. you know, not try to cut it up and yeah. <laughs> put all kinds of things in there that might not be the best thing for yeah. it. So I don't know. It doesn't seem controversial or hateful for me to say that. Yeah. No, it's not. So. It's not. It's just the, the truth. And the truth, you have to balance compassion and the truth. Like, <laughs> compassion is about, like, wanting to help others. But to do that, you have to provide the truth and yeah. reality. You can't help others if you're denying reality. Right. So, I don't know. Um, you know, these, like, um, detransitioners, like, uh, you know, Chloe Cole? Yes. So, so yeah, so mm-hmm. she, she always says on Twitter that she was told that she had a male brain by doctors and stuff as well. Yeah. So like, it's just, it's even getting into the sort of medical profession. It's being oh, pushed yeah. almost. Yeah. yeah. Well, a friend of ours has Kleinfelters 
and was being told by his doctor that he should... He did not need testosterone yeah. therapy. He just needed to accept his gender identity uh, as a like, male like, with a chromosomal yeah. disorder. And it's like, th that's really not good for his health. And what are you doing? That's not your place to put into someone's head. Like, that is so, I don't know. It, it, it's become very toxic and and corrosive. Yeah. They probably think anyone asking for, like, that they need hormone therapy is uh, is, yeah. is wanting cross-sex hormones or, like, or is trans. He know. was talking about how there had been a shortage yeah. of testosterone that was affecting like, him. So... Gender dysphoria is the only condition or like, or just a behavioral state, whether mm. that's affirmed by therapists. Yeah. You don't, you just don't see it anywhere else. No. Yeah. I just don't get why, well, I don't know why it's because of the backlash and the activists and stuff, yeah. but it's just, um, yeah. Especially when you consider that, like the majority of these gender dysphoric children, at least mm -hmm. grow out of it and then like they're, they're actually, you know, homosexual. Yeah. So they don't need to transition yeah. no i yeah if you want to do it in adulthood that's you know that's fine by me you, you yeah. do you but when it becomes like a, when you're sort of young you don't, you don't know what you're doing and right you know it's, it's being pushed yeah. almost it's easy to okay. when you're a kid like when you're a child your immediate adults are like your guides and your example for how the world works so if these people are coming into your life and telling you well if you feel this way or you think that man means this and woman means this, then that means you're this thing. Like it's going to plant those seeds that are going to follow you throughout your development. It's going to color how you see the world and, and things like that and how you perceive your experiences. So like I forever thought growing up that I was, there was something really, really, really wrong with me. I mean, there obviously was with the gender dysphoria, but I mean, I thought there was something wrong with me as a person because I was not able to really make friends with other females. I only got along with males. I liked, you know, boy things like tools and cars and playing rough and that kind of thing. And no, like <laughs> I was just kind of like an atypical, like tomboy and it was fine. It didn't mean anything, but because I had people telling me that it meant something, it stuck with me. And then it was super distressing around puberty because that's when a lot of those like social shifts start to happen. Like suddenly boys don't want to hang out with you because they want to be with their peer group and start seeing girls as, you know, like partners like potential partners and things like that and girls still didn't like me <laughs> but like and so it was just really kind of an outlier and then like I had my friends that were boys that still hung out with me tell me that any boy who dated me was gay because like oh you're just so much like a guy you're one of the guys so they have to be gay if they date <laughs> so yeah it was just it was really not great yeah. <laughs> growing up it didn't help it made things a lot worse so you know of course like transition comes up as like the magic solution finally you'll fit in finally like you'll feel like yourself and no <laughs> no like you'll yeah. you'll figure it out you'll get there you'll find your people yeah. like you just saw that paper that came out a couple of months ago about um they called it like a what they call it a social storm or something about um 
getting gender affirming therapy where mm -hmm. they want it so much it's the it's the environment that they're in that might actually improve their mental health rather than the actual therapy because yeah. they, they, they got what they, they got what they wanted in the end rather than like the treatment did something to their brain and fixed them or whatever it was yeah i get uh, it okay i haven't seen that study i'll have to look that up i'll try and find it marked on twitter a couple of months ago but i'll try and find it send it to you <laughs> Yeah, it, it is. It's like environment plays a huge role. Yeah. And like just getting healthy psychologically plays a huge role, like just feeling comfortable and pulling away from people who are enforcing stereotypes yeah. and and all of that just kind of really helped settle me out. And then, yeah. of course, like processing all of the trauma and everything. Yeah, that was great. <laughs> like, yeah. What a relief. <laughs> Absolutely. Huge relief. Like once yeah. you go through real therapy mm -hmm. and you you accept the the feelings you're having but also recognize that they're not necessarily true there's a more healthy way to yeah. uh live and go about it and and be yeah. at peace with yourself once you go through that you're just at a yeah. much better mental state and and it doesn't mean that uh, like transition is the only way yeah. there's plenty of other yeah. actual therapies out there that are really healthy that that help you align yourself with your body right. and accept yourself for who you are. And that's true for even when people have transitioned. Like I've seen some of my trans friends go from basically the beginning to a point where they just became really obsessive and toxic and their mental state just tanked because it was never enough and they never did the therapy. They never processed anything and it just got worse and worse and worse and then just ghosted me. I have no idea what happened to them. So there's been people like that in my life. There's been other trans friends that I've had that um, they've had to go off hormones for like a health reason and started panicking because they thought they were, oh, well, now I'm going to go back to looking and feeling how I was before. And that's horrible. And it's it's not a great place to be. It sets you up to be mm -hmm. very vulnerable. Um, so even if you do transition like just therapy and pulling yourself yeah. into a point where you can be like, okay, I'm comfortable here, no matter what the outcome is, as long as, you know, I'm okay psychologically, that's the mm -hmm. best thing. Yeah, I agree. A lot of them as well, these therapies are sort of advertised as like, you know, if, if, you, if you do this therapy, it's going to be nothing but good for you. And yeah. these negative side effects are not well known. Mm -hmm. I did a little research a while ago, just... I might get this wrong, but because it's, it's a long time ago, but I noticed that in transsexuals on hormone therapy, they had a reduction of blood levels in a molecule called BDNF, which is quite famous in neuroscience, right? It stands for brain-derived neurotropic factor. And that's very important in depression. So when it's high, your depression is pretty much like low, but when BDNF is low, it increases your risk for depression. So if you're going through these, these therapies and your blood levels are going of BDNF are going down, you're actually increasing your risk for depression. Mm. Wow. Okay. That's really good to know. Yeah. I did not know that before. No, I did know that um, HRT in females can increase like red cell count and things like that. So they they mm -hmm. advocate for you to like donate blood and things like that yeah. a little more to help with that if it gets to be too high. But right. So so you're yeah. saying that was an effect of the cross sex hormones on what or I what? I think they are. I can't remember which way around it was. I just know it was hormone therapy, but I can't remember which it was because it's a while ago I read this, but it's yeah. on my on my pin thread on my Twitter profile. I'm sure I've done a thread about it somewhere. Mm -hmm. I'll try and find it for you, but 
Well, really interesting. let's wrap this up. So <laughs> let's summarize what we basically talked about. In Forrest's, in Forrest Valkai's Sex and Sensibility video, he talks about three brain regions that are su supposedly evidence for people being in <laughs> trapped in an opposite sex body. Even their, though their brain they're really being trapped. small and insignificant. Even though he says they're very <laughs> small and insignificant. And so those different brain regions, there are differences in the brain between males and females in those regions specifically, but they're either on average. not on average. They're either very small. They're either not, the findings are not consistent. So we can't making broad sweeping, like broad sweeping conclusions on what that means. And then second and then third of all, actually, uh, we also don't have enough evidence to show that that a person's gender identity actually is the sex they identify as, like that they they actually are the sex they identify as, because there's all these confounding variables with sexual yeah. orientation and gender identity, gender dysphoria, all these different variables that are either not defined by Forrest or they're confounded. So, and he absolutely left no room for. Um, non-binary or any of the other neo-pronoun no, gender still identities with, within that binary yeah. framework. So, male and female. I want to see the SDMPOA of Aziza. That's what I want to see. <laughs> yeah. Do you have yeah. any like final things to mention or summarize with with that stuff? One thing I actually want to do, I actually want to praise him a little bit because when I did my debunking thread on Twitter, he actually res responded, mm -hmm. yeah. and he was very about it and he was like you know he said i'm a better researcher now than he was when he did the video mm -hmm. it was nothing but happy so and he did say he'll text me he's on board and do another video updated which i would love to see um yeah. so i'd love to thank Forrest for that because that was actually really good of him so. yeah i'm glad he responded and i'm glad he like engaged with you i was mm -hmm. i was honestly really surprised that he did that and he he even showed you the studies that he used and that gave mm -hmm. us the ability to analyze the data in detail and respond to it um and we look forward to seeing his his new video that he'll potentially yeah. create this year. So, yeah. Yeah. You know what it is? It's because he's from Oklahoma. That's why he's so popular. Yeah, he's from Oklahoma like me. So <laughs> he's from Tulsa. I'm, a, I'm from Oklahoma City. Um, yeah. <laughs> that was a really interesting anecdote. But <laughs> it's funny. And you're wearing a similar color shirt yeah. right now. <laughs> well, your brothers. Yeah. <laughs> Long lost brothers. <laughs> Finally united through biology. Yeah, let's do that twin study. <laughs> One believes in the sex spectrum, one believes in the sex binary. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so so people can find you, Sammy, at uh, NeuroSGS on Twitter. Mm -hmm. And they can look at your pinned tweet, I think, which shows a lot of your threads on neuroscience and sex differences and, and sexual orientation and gender identity and all those mm -hmm. great resources. Yeah. So thanks for joining us. This has been awesome. No and loved it, yeah. Yeah, it's, I'm glad we took the time to respond to this. And I think because we went into so much detail, I'm going to upload this as a, like as a, as a standalone, standalone <laughs> thing. So, yeah. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you again. No worries. Cheers, guys. Thank you very much.